A coalition of federal manager advocacy groups urges the White House and Congress to fix what they say is a systemic problem with federal pay. It's called pay compression. It affects those at the upper ranks of the federal career employees. They aren't legally allowed to earn more than appointees, and Congress won't give them a raise. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me with the latest. And Drew, just walk us through the details of pay compression. This is something that comes up from time to time, but it seems to be getting worse as the years progress. Right, Tom. It, it is, as you said, it's because there is a pay cap for political appointees, which are employees work for the government, but they're on the executive schedule. So those at level four and above are under a pay cap. And because of the way that um, stat- statute is set, that impacts employees on the general schedule and kind of those upper levels. So usually about GS-15 is when you start seeing that what they call pay compression start to hit. And this does depend on, you know, where the GS employees work and their spot exactly on the federal career ladder. But it's been an issue for several years. And as you said, it is something that gets a little bit worse every year as other employees on the general schedule who are lower down continue to get these annual federal pay raises. In other words, if, say, Gina Raimondo at Commerce is making, I i don't know what they earn off the top of my head, but say $200,000, let's say, that means the highest paid career person there can't make more than $199,999.99. Yeah, that's pretty much what the problem is. And that's why this coalition is kind of bringing this up now. And what are they specifically saying? They're saying that pay compression, as I said, it's become worse and it's something that they're now saying needs a solution, needs a fix. It's something that the Biden administration back in March when they released their 2024 budget proposal, they hinted at the idea of fixing pay compression. It was specifically mentioned in the budget. But so far, we haven't seen any proposal or any specific legislation following that initial just hinting at this pay compression fix. So now you have groups, a coalition of manager advocacy groups for federal managers saying, you know, where is this proposal? And they they want to see more from the Biden administration. And they're saying generally that the Federal Salary Council and the president's pay agent just aren't doing enough to address these more systemic issues. So even though they say it's a good thing that there have been For example, new pay locality areas that are going to be added in 2024, most likely, that's not enough to address these deeper rooted issues with the way the general schedule is set up. Yes, you do see agencies turning more and more to different narrowly applied authorities to, say, give their data officers or their chief technology officers or the CIOs more money. But, you know, that's a process they have to go through and it doesn't really apply across the board. I guess the administration could do several things or propose several things. It could prevail on Congress to raise the cap on politicals, and therefore everybody else could follow in the wake. Or they could say, let's just eliminate that provision that you can't make more than a political if you're a career. But nothing has come out yet from that promise of a proposal. Right. There's nothing yet that we've seen. OMB hasn't released any sort of way to specifically address this, even though it is something that the president's pay agent, which is this three-person panel, from the Office of Personnel Management, OMB, and then the Labor Department. They've said in many reports across many years that federal pay is an issue, that there need to be major legislative reforms. But so far, you know, no one's made that specific proposal. And I think now we're getting a lot more frustration from the voices of advocacy groups. And one of those groups is the Senior Executives Association. And I spoke to Jason Breifel, who's their Director of Policy and Outreach, to hear more. The president's pay agent 
has written reports to the president for 20 years saying doesn't make sense and doesn't work. I read 20 years of those reports. You get to a certain point where it doesn't even matter if it's a Democrat or a Republican in the White House. They both are saying that the process in the system doesn't work, is, is leaving certain employees behind, and needs to be revisited. And yet we seem like we're in this never-ending carousel ride where somebody is just pointing to the person to the left of them, but nobody ever does the hard work and comes up with a proposal. Well, I admire his intestinal fortitude for being able to read 20 years of pay agent reports, but this is more than just someone would like a better salary for themselves. There are larger effects here, aren't there? Right. I think the, the one of the questions is that there is this wage gap between the private sector and the public sector. So it's been federal sector wages have trailed the private sector for at least a decade. And that's according to data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And, you know, others say that the general schedule in general, that whole pay system is just in, completely outdated and needs to be revamped or just removed, changed. And a lot of these bigger, deeper questions that you can kind of look at. But so far, as you said, there's more of these piecemeal changes for specific groups of employees that are getting these pay raises, but that also can bring more complications with it. So it's just this big question where I think you're getting a lot more groups and people who are following this asking, you know, where's where's the answer? Where's this proposal from the Biden administration after they said that it was part of their plan in the budget proposal? Now there's a coalition. They have notified the Labor Department, the White House, OPM with what they want. What's going to happen next, if anything, Drew? The Government Managers Coalition, or GMC, that's the name of this coalition of federal managers groups. They said that they're eagerly awaiting the proposal from the Biden administration. Again, they do say, you know, thanks to OPM for uh, putting out these new locality pay changes and that sort of proposal there. And that is a good step, but that there need to be these larger reforms. One part of the question here, though, is at least for pay compression, there would be a pretty significant cost to fix, to go back and add those pay step increases for the GS-15 employees and others. So there is that bigger question. But Jason Breifel from SEA said it's going to be important to look at those numbers regardless. The data and the facts about that need to be put on the table so we can have a rational conversation about what do we do about all that. But just being afraid that the number is big and knowing that agencies can't do anything with it is still no justification for the lack of leadership that we're seeing. If you read these like reports from the page, uh, you can see a trend from administration to administration, year to year. They're like, man, this system's crazy. Somebody really needs to propose a better system here. Who are these folks waiting on to come up with the plan? Good question. It is a good question. And, you know, I think maybe we'll see some response from the Biden administration here. But for the time being, it's it's just a waiting game to see what proposal they're going to come up with. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, 
associate provost at Auburn University and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Har's hand. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. 
I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, 
you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way. That's sort of I, I the way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know. <laughs> And um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I I, I happen to think so. Well, Doctor <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.